If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 25. Psalm 25. It says here, it's the Psalm of David. David, writing under inspiration of the Spirit, says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me and for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. For the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, as we give heed to this psalm this evening uh, from the songbook of your church. We pray that you would instruct us in the way of righteousness, even as we as the church are in great distress and trouble, that you would teach us to put our hope in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just a little over uh, two weeks ago, I uh, asked my girlfriend to be my wife, and she said yes, and we had been planning this for quite some time. And as I've said before, she is a uh, single mother of four, uh, goes to a, is a member of a Reformed church out in the Midwest, 
Uh, and uh, in uh, celebration of this, we had planned a particular night in which we would take the kids out for some type of way to celebrate us being a family. The kids finally having a father and uh, her finally having a fiancé and myself as well. And uh, what better way to celebrate this new found family than by taking the kids to medieval times? Not sure if you're familiar with medieval times, but it's this giant kind of dinner theater that you might find. They have in about a dozen cities here in the U.S. where uh, you walk in and they serve this kind of five-course meal while the family sit around uh, watching this old kind of medieval jousting type tournament. It was a great amount of fun as you buy laser swords, these glow-in-the-dark swords for the kids, and they watch the horses run by, and you have a big, delicious meal. Well, as we were on our way out, of course, they had a gift shop, and uh, myself and Abby told the kids, well, whatever you want, uh, pick out something that you think you would like to commemorate this day. And, and so the boys picked, uh, one of the boys picked a horse, another boy picked a sword and an axe, but then as a family... They said, oh, look at this, this really beautiful chessboard. There was this chessboard that was set out with all the, the chess pieces uh, modeled after King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And I said, oh, wait, uh, this is terrific, a great idea. Let's get this as the family and, and all play chess together. And then I, and I thought this was such a great idea until I, I made my way home and I realized I don't know how to play chess. So you can only guess what I've been reading at night these past few weeks is chess for dummies. Even as all the little kids know how to play, it's something I've always wanted to learn how to play, and I, I was very, I'm very open to the idea of us getting a chess set. I think I was actually the one who suggested it, but I was like, I, I don't actually know how to play. I think we've all been there when we have that burning desire to learn a new skill, be it learning how to play the cello or that dire need to tackle a problem such as fixing a leaky roof. I spoke with Steve earlier this week about uh, a problem I have with my roof at my house, and I said I was trying to read up on it, and Steve says, well, watch YouTube videos. It's much more helpful and instructive than reading a book. But we've all done this thing where, where we're confronted with a particular task and we don't know what to do. So often the best place to begin then is at the beginning. To learn the ABCs, as it were, of shipbuilding or trigonometry or brain surgery, you have to start somewhere. I think the same issue arises when we have to begin addressing those practical day-to-day -day matters such as dealing with trouble and anxiety. When those circumstances of life hem us in and they suffocate us, we are left grasping for air, ignorant of where to turn. I think what we have in this psalm is an introductory method, the ABCs, as it were, of dealing with anxiety. Dealing with anxiety for dummies. Something like that, except we're not, you know what I mean. Why do I say that? Well, what we find in the psalms is that there are certain psalms in the Bible that are written in an acrostic pattern. So that the first line begins with the letter A, or in Hebrew, Aleph, and then the second letter is the next letter of the alphabet B, C, D, E, F, G, and the list goes on. We saw that earlier a few months ago when we looked at Psalms 10 and 11, where we were presented with a basic introductory uh, a poem, as it were, to the nature of God's justice. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and you see here there are 22 letters 
Uh, 22 verses to this psalm. Each line, for the most part, begins with each successive letter of the alphabet. It is the ABCs, and there is here a unifying theme, something that ties this entire psalm together. It's found there in verse 22, and the reason I can say that is that very last verse is the only verse that breaks the protocol. It breaks the pattern. It does not follow the acrostic. So as it were, for 20, nearly 22 verses, you have, you know, as it were, the English equivalent A, B, C, D, E, F, G, making it way through the whole alphabet. And then the last verse does not follow that. So it seems that that last verse is a summary of the main themes that we see here in this psalm. And you see what verse 22 tells us. It's the great prayer that the Lord would redeem Israel out of all of His troubles a word there that speaks of the constricting distress, the anxieties that overwhelm someone. It's a word that connotes being caught in a, and trapped in a tight place, unable to move or breathe. In other words, this is a prayer that teaches us what it looks like to have faith in God when we are in the throes of distress. Here we have a psalm that literally gives us the ABCs of entrusting ourselves to the one who redeems us from all our anxieties. So this acrostic pattern uh, we find that is actually kind of coupled in three distinct stanzas, three uh, um, sections or paragraphs, if you will. First, we can take the section that we can call honor in verses 1 to 7. You see that with that repeated prayer that David gives saying, Lord, do not let me put to shame, be put to shame. Rather, what's the opposite of shame? That of honor. And second, in, uh, in verses 8 to 14, we'll consider the matter of pardon as the Lord pardons us of our sins, and finally the matter of rescue in verses 15 to 22. So these three sections dealing with honor, pardon, and rescue. For those of you who struggle with anxiety or have ever struggled with it either occasionally or as a habitual problem, I think we all recognize that the most difficult thing about anxiety is how paralyzing it is. You know, when distress hits, what do you do? I don't know about you, but sometimes when problems seem so overwhelming, it just causes me to shut down. It's like a serpent that has just paralyzed its prey. Anxiety feels debilitating and incapacitating. It makes you feel numb. And if you don't know what to do or where to go, you are stuck. Well, David begins this psalm by saying what it is that he does when he is beset with all forms of distress and trouble and anxiety. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What a vivid image this is of faith. Because that's exactly what he's talking about here. You see that in the very next line as he gives kind of this parallel statement, O God, in you I trust. It's this image of rolling oneself onto the Lord when there is nothing left to do, when you feel paralyzed and incapable of acting. You entrust yourself to the One who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you can ask or think. One of my favorite books on prayer is written by an old Swedish Lutheran by the name of Ollie Halsby. In his book on prayer, his first chapter, Sinclair Ferguson, by the way, thinks it's the greatest book on prayer that he's ever read. It's, it's, it's a short little book. I commend it to you. 
Who would? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Norwegian. I apologize. But the first chapter he asks is this. He says, why is prayer so hard? And he gets to this point, and I think it's an important question to ask. Why do we have such a hard time praying? He says it's so hard to pray because it cuts against human autonomy and self-sufficiency. The last thing we ever want to do is ask for help. And yet, isn't that what anxiety and distress forces us to do? It, it backs us into the corner where we realize we are not able to free ourselves from this situation with the use of our own resources. We need some type of outside help. We want to be in control, and yet prayer is a continual acknowledgement of our own helplessness. And so David says here, as he speaks throughout this whole psalm of his own distresses and troubles, that he entrusts himself to the Lord because there is nowhere else for him to turn. Are you anxious? Do you struggle with anxiety? Lift up your soul to the Lord. Roll yourself into His tender care. He will not turn you away. He will not humiliate you. And he will not put you to shame. It's the very thing that David speaks of here. Of course, we have all these kind of self-defense mechanisms in our own human psyche, don't we? Where we think, oh yes, of course, God is willing and able to save if He wanted to. And of course, He could save any of my friends and any of my family except for me. My situation is too complex. You don't know the depth of my sin or the, the, the troubles of this particular matter. We find any excuse we can to tell ourselves that God is somehow not willing or able to help me in X particular case. He could do so theoretically elsewhere, but where the rubber meets the road, our, our sinful human heart try, is convinced that the Lord is not willing to help us be it due to our circumstances in life or the shame and humiliation that we feel from our foes or the sins that we have committed. And yet this psalm continues to cut our unbelief off at the knees. We ask, have you ever been humiliated and think that there is no way out? Notice what David says here, none who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. The enemies of Christ's church, no matter how great, will not win. Not even death will have the last word, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Have you ever been humiliated by friends or peers, co-workers, family members, because you have put your hope in Christ? It's certainly the situation that Peter finds his audience in when he writes, to, um, writes his first epistle as David's been preaching in the evenings. You have Christians who are being ostracized by neighbors because they're not getting drunk at the town kegger. Peter refers to that as a form of persecution. It's humiliating to be left out of the inner circle, to be cut off from friends or peers because you think that there are things that you cannot do. You know there are things you cannot do because your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Himself. Friends and family might disappoint you, but Christ never will. 
And yet the defense mechanism kicks in again, and we say to ourselves, of course, Christ would never let others down, but, but I'm an exception. He, he's not going to deal that way with me. He needs to be harder with me. Isn't that the case that so often we are so hard on ourselves, thinking that we have to somehow merit God's favor and approval before He would ever help us? And yet we see, once again, that unbelief being cut off at the knees here in verses 4 and 5. All of the Lord's paths are truth and kindness. Not most of His paths. Not like 95% of the Lord's ways are, are truth and kindness. All of His ways. And by ways here, it means the Lord's dealings with those who put their hope in Him. That's what David's saying here. All those who fear the Lord, this is how the Lord operates. This is his M.O. And so David, when he prays, teach me your ways, he is saying this, train me to grasp your dealings with men, with those who fear your name. How do you treat those with whom you are in fellowship with? And once again, we find our our own psyche, our own conscience springing up into self-defense mode, going, yet, but, 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 uh, you pastor, you don't know my past sins. I don't know your past sins, but God does. And look at how the Lord Himself responds, the Lord who knows everything and sees everything. Verses 6 and 7, David prays, remember your mercy, but do not remember my sin. What an interesting contrast that is. Do not remember my sin, but, but remember your mercy according to your steadfast love and faithfulness. David himself seems, uh, it seems that his conscience is afflicted by sins that he committed long ago. Those past sins from so long that strike and wound the conscience late at night, that haunt and terrorize by day. We've, I think so many of us who are older recognize this as we driving down the road and all of a sudden there's that moment of, of some particular sin that we committed so long ago that we had, perhaps have not even thought about in years. And it's paralyzing. And it's as if you can't move. And you begin to wonder, has God really forgiven all of my sins? This was Luther's dilemma. Luther was so concerned that he didn't pray the prayer good enough, as it were. And so he keeps going back time and time and time again. Because he still thinks that God's mercy is contingent upon how well we've repented. Now, isn't that the same dilemma that so many of us have faced in our own personal walks? Yet, David here teaches us what it means to trust in God. It's found in lifting our soul and its anxieties up to the Lord, enrolling ourselves into His tender mercy, as He now reminds us of yet another feature. He draws our attention to the uh, the, the contesting conscience. He reminds us of the goodness of God. We note here how often in verses 8-14, to 14, David speaks of God's goodness here. And maybe I could ask this question to you. How would you, you know, no cheating, don't look ahead, even though we've already read it, how would you define the goodness of God? You might say, well, God is good, therefore He punishes sinners. Well, yes and no. Of course, God's goodness is such that He will not overlook sin or iniquity or transgression. But I want you to note where David's thoughts are directed here. 
Isn't it shocking? Isn't it surprising? This is not the path uh, that, that my thoughts would initially lead me if Scripture was not directing me to think these particular thoughts. Look at this, verse 8. God is good. Therefore, He what? He instructs sinners in the way that they should go. He instructs sinners in His paths. Well, what are His paths? Well, we've already heard this earlier in verse 10. All of His paths are steadfast love and mercy, kindness and faithfulness. Could it just be that you have made too little of the love of God? Could it be the case that we have too truncated a view of God's mercy to sinners like you and me? Romans 2 tells us that it is not God's severity that leads men to repentance. It is God's kindness that is intended to lead men to repentance. And this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are told that His kindness is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 145, the Lord is kind in all of His, way, in all of his ways, and He is faithful in all of His works. To whom does the Lord show kindness? We see here the answer in verse 9. It's the humble. We could just as easily translate it as the afflicted. Those who have been under the thumb of those uh, of, of the powerful and mighty sinners. It's the very thing that we've been hearing as we've given our attention the past few months to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus pronounces the blessings on those who mourn, to those who have been persecuted, to those who grieve, to those who are meek and humiliated and afflicted. You see, God's goodness is found in how He teaches sinners who He is. That He is the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And so we find that God's goodness is found here in the pardon of sin. You see that here in verses 10 and 11. David is concerned not only about past sins of long ago, but those present ones in the here and now. I don't have to go back 15 years to fret about sin. I can just turn my attention to the events of this past week and recognize that I am still in need of great pardon. Not just the light sins, but the great ones as well, you see in verse 11. Notice the reason why he prays for the forgiveness of sins. You'll see it in both 6 and 7, and then again in verses 10 and 11. Why am I pleading for you to pardon my guilt, O God? Well, it's not according to my own righteousness that I'm pleading my case, but I'm pleading my case according to your mercy. I have no leg left to stand on. I am pleading for pardon, not for the sake of my reputation, but for your name's sake. I think our attention is immediately drawn to Israel in the wilderness where Moses says to the Lord when the Lord's about to strike down Israel for her habitual sin, and Moses says, well, what will the nations think of you if you killed off all the people that you've redeemed? For the sake of your name, blot out my transgressions, Paul, or David writes later. Not because of my goodness, But your goodness, O God, forgive me. Not because my sins are small, but just the opposite. Pardon them, for they are great. David knows the quickest way 
is to come clean with the Lord who is willing and able to pardon him of all of his sins and wash him of all his iniquities. This is our God. We have waited for him. The people of God claim, proclaim in Isaiah. We have waited for him that he might save us. So God's goodness is seen in his merciful instruction to sinners and the pardon of sin he gives to all who turn to him in repentance. And it's also found, his goodness is also found in the friendship that he gives. We see that here in verses 12 to 14. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being is how the ESV puts it quite literally. His soul will abide in goodness because the Lord is good. Therefore, you have no reason to fear, not just the man who fears the Lord, but his offspring. As his offspring being born and, and made recipients of the covenant promises as they, as they grow up and, 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 and put their hope in the Lord himself. It's so interesting here, we read elsewhere, Psalm 37, for instance, that the meek, the humble shall inherit the earth, but here it's the offspring of the humble who shall inherit the earth as well. As God's covenant extends from generation to generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. What a thought this is, that the God of heaven from whom the angels in heaven avert their eyes, crying day and night throughout all eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This same God delights to befriend sinners like you and me. That's what verse 14 says. You can't make this up. It's too good to be true, and yet it's so good. It is true. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. It's a merciful covenant. It is a covenant established by grace and in grace that sinners might drink deeply and know fully the forgiveness of sins that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord draws sinners in, and He brings in the afflicted into everlasting friendship with cords of loving kindness with a love so strong that not even death can sever its bonds what can we say to these things if god is for us who could be against us if he did not spare his son how would he not graciously give us all other things that we need so great is the love of god for us that has been poured out in our hearts by the lord jesus christ as he has given us his spirit as the down payment, as the, uh, the assurance, as the, the engagement ring, as it were, to know that we belong to Christ and to no other. Such is the goodness of God. Think of what this, this prayer does for the anxious heart. And here David, in leading the anxious in a congregational prayer, continues the suit to soothe the troubled heart with yet another great truth, that God will come and He will in fact save the deliverance that he gives seen here in verses 15 to 22. I think when we wrestle with anxiety and trouble, it'd be so much easier if we could just have it cured by the flipping of a switch, by uh, some type of vaccination shot or a magic pill. But that's not how life works, is it? Even as Older troubles abate, new troubles arise day in and day out. We are uh, confronted moment by moment with new threats, new moments in which we are tempted to doubt the Lord's goodness to us in our lives. 
The flip side of the coin is we are presented with new opportunities to entrust ourselves to the Lord knowing that the Lord never changes. And this is why David says here in verse 15, my eyes are always, they are ever toward the Lord. Uh, if you struggle with anxiety, this is an ongoing practice. There is a habitual disposition we are taught and instructed to cultivate of continuing to entrust ourselves to the Lord who will never disappoint us, to our gracious Heavenly Father who will never let us down. It's a continual process. Therefore, the, practicing of, the practice of reckoning with the anxious heart is an ongoing battle. But the good news is you have one who has made a promise, who has sworn by himself, and he will not relent. He will not change his mind. What do you trust in more? Visible circumstances that surround you? Or the proclaimed promises that God has given us in His Word? Be it loneliness, or affliction, or sin. These are all things that David is describing here in this passage. David notes that all of these are a plague upon his heart. They are things that hem him in. They are things that distress him and constrict him. There's a certain wordplay that's going on here in verse 17. That word there for troubles is a word that, that means a, a constriction, a hemming in. And what he says is, my constrictions are enlarged. In other words, my troubles continue to grow more and more as I'm in further and further in. The boa constrictor has wrapped himself around me and he continues to tighten his grip and he continues to grow and grow and grow. Deliver me from my distress, O Lord. Rescue me from my anxiety. Be it the anxieties caused by afflictions or trouble, be it from my own troubled conscience or my enemies, be it from the enemy without or even the enemy within, there is no enemy that's too great for our gracious God. As He has promised to deliver us from our estate of sin and of misery. And here David says, O oh Lord, I'm waiting. Even as David awaits the final deliverance, he says, I will continue to put my trust in you. And here we see at the very end what was once a, a very personal prayer. Uh, the prayer of the king now becomes the prayer of the whole nation. As you see that here in verse 22. Where it's not just David praying now. It says, O oh Lord, redeem Israel from all of his troubles. Here we find the king praying on behalf of the nation as the great representative of the people of God. Where there is no anxiety that uh, falls outside the purview of the great intercessor's prayer. O Lord, my great God, deliver Your people from all their anxieties. This psalm leaves no room for exemption when it comes to anxiety and trouble. There is no excuse for you to have you say, well, I'm worried about all these things, but the Bible doesn't address X situation. False. I encourage you to get Psalm 25 down deep in your heart. What is it that ails you? What is it that troubles you? What worries assail you? As we sang earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. He will come 
and He will save in the light of His glory and grace. It's the very word our Savior gives as He comes to His people in His tenderness and care in His incarnate ministry. Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Full stop. The condition is that you come. That's it. Turn to Jesus. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I guarantee you, I promise you, you will find rest for your souls. For our Savior's yoke is easy and His burden is light. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for the Word of grace that You have given to lift our hearts. We pray that You would train us to put our hope in You. For those who are beset with great anxiety, we pray that You would use Your Word to root those anxieties out, that they would learn to Keep their cares on You, for You care for them. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.